Hi, my name is Vanessa, and this is the Meiji at 150 student podcast. My topic today is Japan's 1960s pop culture. Hello, Vanessa. Hi. So, Japan's 1960s pop culture, why did you choose this topic? I've been researching a lot about the 60s. I've been realizing how much of our modern music is actually influenced by the 1960s, and that pretty much spurred me to follow this topic. Okay, and so what did you discover doing your research on Japanese 1960s pop culture? I basically discovered that Japan, outside of American influence, had its own underground counterculture CD、um, music genre that was popping up. It's called group sound.、Mm-hmm. And it was really,、uh, I just wanted to research more about that.、Mm, okay. I mean, so what's in general your impression of the 1960s? What, what's kind of going on in the world and what's going on in Japan in the 1960s? Well, I think just to speak on America and Japan at the time, well, the Vietnam War was going on.、Mm-hmm. And besides that, the hippie revolution.、Mm-hmm. And like Japan was very much involved with、uh, providing America with material, napalm, infam- infamously known.、Mm-hmm. And yeah, like student counterculture, I think this new generation of youth was really coming into its own identity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we associate with the hippie movement, the free love movement, the kind of protest scene. And as you mentioned, certainly Japan has its own moments of protest in 1960, starting with the Anpo protest in、right. 1960, the Bay Hayden protest, 65 to 60 to 70, and of course the Vietnam protest. And just like in the US, where there's this musical side to it, In Japan. So, is there a musical side to it? Yeah, I think there's very much so a musical side to it.、Uh, definitely targeted not necessarily at the Americans, but mostly、mm-hmm. at their own government. A lot of this music,、uh, psychedelic rock,、uh, rock music in itself, it happened to be really political. Just the wording. I mean, you can compare it to the 1980s punk、uh, revolution、mm. that happened in Europe and how it was so political in that sense. So, what would be an example of, of a band or maybe a few songs that are particularly anti government, as you mentioned? There's actually a couple that I'd like people to listen to. There's the Spiders, there's also the Mops. Okay, so what's one song by the Spiders? Well, thankfully, the Spiders actually recorded a lot of their songs in half English and half Japanese, so I was able to decipher a couple of them. There's one in particular called Fury Fury 66 that had the lyrics My hair is long and it sways with the music. Now, I get that's pretty innocuous to us in North America if we were in the 60s, but in Japan to have long hair at that time, I think that's definitely not status quo. And right after that chorus, Jun Unua, the lead singer, he says, Describe the mobs as a band. They're very Western influence initially. They started off as like a folk rock band, but soon found their own niche in the industry and really developed into like one of Japan's main like psychedelia, trippy rock bands. Perfectly shown in their song Kine Omoi, or the anthem in English. These, this like groovy tune that's really similar to like the Beatles.
So what about these songs makes them a product of the 1960s? We talk about the 60s as this moment of maybe pop culture revolution, uh, the antagonism to the state, uh, and really kind of political responses to what's going on in the world. So what about these bands and these songs in particular makes them counterculture? It makes them counterculture just because of the pandemonium that it triggered mm. among this generation like the baby boomers, of course, their own cohort, their own group, if they realize that they could take political action, whether that be through them having their consciousness through music or literature or whatever, um, it's like powerful. And I think mm -hmm. governments were pretty intimidated by that. You mentioned that the Mops in particular started as a folk band. Mm -hmm. And you don't really think of folk as being a kind of rambunctious, violent kind of music. So why is it that folk is so politically charged. I mean, in the U.S., you know, the 1960s political music scene is dominated by people like Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. The times they are a-changing, blowing in the wind. I mean, this is all folk music that he's writing, and that's yeah. what goes on and becomes the sound of the political revolution and the political movements in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that in Japan, too, you have the guerrilla folk a non-violent revolutionary band, uh, kind of following the same doctrines as Gandhi, um, uh, Martin Luther King in America. And basically they were centered in Shinjuku Station and they protested among thousands of youth, their fellow peers, against obviously Japan's involvement in the Vietnam War. And um, this turned very political. Many of the people that were actually arrested, one of those arrested was a woman named Seiko Oki. And still today, she goes to Shinjuku Station and protests for a variety of different things, whether that be nuclear technology, disarmament, mm -hmm. um, plenty of things. Mm -hmm. And of course, per perhaps the, the most well-known example of the guerrilla folk artist is Okabayashi Nobuyasu, who has this great song, Kuso Kuraibushi, or basically the Eat Shit song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one's uh, particularly interesting. I think people often look at that one first when they think about, like, uh, youth opinion on their government at that time. And, and just the youth opinion, uh, contrary to the older generation, the kind of rejection of the older generation. Well, the song, uh, in the lyrics where he's talking about you know, the teacher who tells him that if you want to be a good, upstanding citizen, you have to score 100 points on your math test. And he says, well, so could I, because all I need is, a, is an electronic calculator now if I want to do math. <laughs> But you mentioned Pulp Fiction, too, in popular literature. So how is that playing into the 1960s? Or how is that a product of this political revolution in the 1960s? I think it's almost more of a subtle critique of the government. I think literature has always been subtle in that way. I mean, certainly writers like Ishihara Shintaro, is criticizing the older generation. Abe Kobo is, is criticizing basically all of Japanese society at the time. What other forms of pop culture did you look into? Into film, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Kurosawa's uh, 
was a huge filmmaker uh, post-war, and I think he really gave voice to like what exactly went on after war, and that it wasn't this bright life. And then I think that gave room for people in different genres to express themselves in like unique ways. I think 1964 Tokyo Driver was like so radically different than anything that had ever been produced. And um, even today, we see like remakes of these or like a turnover of culture. 2000s like Tokyo Drift by Fast and Furious. Um, that like some parts of the movie literally line up with each other. Yeah, and in the 60s, Suzuki Seijun, this incredibly iconoclastic director, starts making all of his Yakuza films. Yeah. Tokyo Nagaremono or Tokyo Drifter. Probably one of the best examples, I think, of this 1960s Yakuza film as kind of celebrating the criminal life. But mm-hmm. then uh, you mentioned Kurosawa has, has a movie called Tengoku to Jigoku or Heaven and Hell. I think it's translated in English as High and Low. Probably one of the best Kurosawa films, I would say set in the contemporary time and really focuses on the criminality of Yokohama and the kind of underworld of Yokohama and even depicts people overdosed from 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 drugs. Uh, and so depicting a much kind of different life that's very contrary to, to the bright life, as you said, very counterculture and very counter-mainstream. Yeah, I think um, you can even see these visibly in Life Magazine's edition when Michael Rougier... Uh, traveled to Japan in 1964, he basically went into these like seedy nightlife areas and there was plenty of people that were cross-dressing. There was lots of things that would never be allowed in like the daytime or like, so I think a lot of these people, they were salarymen, they were hard workers during the day, but at night they kind of became themselves. So are these kinds of counterculture movements the films, the dance parties, the raves that you're talking about. You know, when you look at the visuals and say, oh, well, you know, that looks like the Beatles or that looks like the Monkees, that looks like Herman's Hermits or any other British invasion band uh, from the 60s. And I, I think some people might say, well, they're just copying what's going on in the West. 1968 student protests in Tokyo, well, they're, they're just copying the student protests around the world. They're just mimicking the West. It's, do you think there's something going on in the 1960s that is making this more original, making this kind of reaction more homegrown? Yeah, I think it's definitely a valid point to compare uh, all the all the uprisings and uh, different revolutions that were happening in the 60s in Japan to America. But I think people have to put it into context what exactly was going on in Japan at the time. Japan was going through a huge industrial revolution, a high-speed economic growth at the time. This put a lot of societal stresses on the working class, especially men who were working overtime many times during the week. And these men needed to blow off steam. Um, Also the women in some cases too. And this is why we'd see dance halls and raves filled at night with uh, salary men by day and punk rockers by night. (laughs) All right, so it makes sense. You know, the the kind of stresses of high-speed economic growth and and then the expectations of working all the time and really trying to focus your energies on rebuilding. Japan's going to cause some stress. Who's your favorite of all of these bands? So one of the bands that was at Beatlemania in 1966 was the Linden Linders. And they specialized in folk rock mostly. And a lot of their music often was Western inspired, but they really carved out their own place in the Japanese music industry that is still even heard today in anime, in popular television shows, and etc. Yeah, yeah, Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. 
This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.